Well, as I said, I want to speak to you tonight from the 16th chapter of Luke's Gospel. I will read the text momentarily, but I want to begin with a bit of a story, as I sometimes do. I want to tell you this evening of a remarkable conversion. You have maybe heard of the Holy Club, which was formed in 1729. It consisted of, of a group of young students at Oxford University who met under the leadership of John and Charles Wesley. They would meet for prayer and the study of Scripture. They would challenge each other with a desire to promote holiness, committed Christian living in each other's lives. The name Holy Club wasn't one that they gave to themselves. It was what others called them, and that is an insult. And then we have another young man that comes onto the scene, a man by the name of George Whitfield, who was soon drawn to this Holy Club and struck up a friendship with the two Wesley brothers. Well, before long, George Whitfield was powerfully converted. And of course, he would go on, I think, in my estimation, to become most likely the greatest preacher of the 18th century, preaching to hundreds of thousands, literally hundreds of thousands, on both sides of the Atlantic. And again, that in the 18th century. But this is not the remarkable conversion that I plan to speak to you about. You see, there was another club in existence at this time, the Hellfire Club, a group of freethinkers and pagans. And when it was clear that the preaching of Whitfield was having such an impact on a very needy British culture, the Hellfire Club began to hammer him with opposition. In nearly every town, members of the Hellfire Club would gather to oppose George Whitfield and his ministry. They would accost him in the streets, they would throw things at him while he was preaching, they would ridicule him publicly, they would do anything they could possibly do to disrupt the work of the Lord. In every way, they were the truly evil counterpart to the Holy Club. And then there's a guy named John Thorpe, one of its most loyal members. And one day when Whitfield Touring through the country of England came to preach in a town called Rotherham. John Thorpe and his group of buddies gathered in a crowded pub one evening in order to make a mockery of Whitfield and his message. And one of them had a brilliant idea, so they thought. It was suggested that they should have a contest to see who could mimic Whitfield the best. Those competing would simply open up the Bible at random and preach a mock sermon on whatever text they landed on. Thorpe was apparently pretty good at doing these kinds of impressions. He knew all of Whitfield's mannerisms and gestures, so he eagerly volunteered to take a turn. Well, when the time came, Thorpe stood in the center of this pub and wildly crossed his eyes. He was poking fun at Whitfield's looks, who apparently was somewhat cross-eyed. Well, after the laughter and the uproar died down, he brashly announced to those gathered at the pub, I shall beat you all. Someone handed him a Bible, and it fell open to Luke 13. 
His eyes fixed on verse 3. The Lord Jesus saying, Unless you repent, you shall all likewise So he began to read the text aloud, fully intending to deliver a message-mocking Whitfield style. But as soon as he read the text, something incredible happened. One of Whitfield's biographers says of this moment, quote, Thorpe's mind was affected in a very extraordinary manner. The sharpest pangs of conviction now seized him, and in a moment he was favored with a clear view of his subject in the text. Thorpe himself said later that his mind was filled with sudden insight on the text. He delivered a full sermon on it, not as a blasphemer, but with genuine gospel passion. And as he began to preach that text, the whole pub fell silent. The Word of God, all by itself, had pierced John Thorpe's heart. And when he finished that sermon, he sat down, trembling and brokenhearted. That night, there in that pub, he confessed the truth of the gospel and gave his life to Jesus Christ. He would later go on to preach in the company of John Wesley and have many years of fruitful ministry. And beloved, this is just one example among many throughout our church's history. Simply put, I'm here to tell you tonight, Scripture is enough. John Thorpe needed nothing more than the Word of God brought home to his heart and mind by the Spirit of the living God, and he was a forever changed man. And keep in mind, the portion of God's Word that he read that night was very short and simple. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's all it took. So, with great confidence, I'm here to tell you tonight, Scripture is enough. Now please turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke, the 16th chapter. I'll pick up in reading at verse 19 and read through the end of the chapter. This truly is the living Word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things 
But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. May the Lord bless the proclamation of his sufficient word. Pray with me. Father, you know exactly what we need. And you're so loving, Lord, you you give it to us. Even when we don't come with the right mindset, even when we're not pursuing you, Lord, we're often found being pursued by you. Oh, Lord, you're gracious, kind, good, merciful, patient, long-suffering, knowing what we need tonight. Would you feed us good food? Would you speak? Would you commission your spirit to meet with us? to open our hearts, the eyes of our understanding, and to speak the very truth we need. Work, O God, for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it seems fitting, the way that I'm going to approach the text tonight, to break this sermon down into three straightforward parts. First, what men want. Second, what men need. And third, the sufficiency of Scripture. What men want, what men need, and the sufficiency of Scripture. My desire and prayer tonight is that God would so steady your confidence in His Word and embolden you to cling to it all the more. Because we've got a fight on our hands, dear ones. For two millennia, Both Satan and the worldly intelligentsia of every age have been working overtime to cripple, malign, and even erase the Bible. If they can't eradicate it altogether, they'll deface it any way they can. If they can't invalidate it, they'll labor day and night to distort its meaning and message. The world is no friend to Scripture. If the natural man loves darkness and hates the light, as we read in the third chapter of John, then he must hate the book that is light and life. If the natural man is hostile to God, and we know that he is based on Romans, then he will be forever an enemy of the book of God. So, I'm here to tell you this is no time to be idle or indifferent or complacent. We've got a fight on our hands. 
your arch enemy goes about like a roaring lion seeking those he could devour. He's angry, he knows that his time is short, and it's getting shorter every day, even every hour. So you, dear Christian, must hold the line. As the church, the pillar and buttress of the truth, we must stand firm. If we're going to hold fast to this book as the living, breathing testimony of our dear Lord, then we must be those that live like we believe it. Now to the text we must go. While I took the time to read the 13 verses, the entire story of the rich man and Lazarus, I will only focus tonight on the final five verses of that text. So let's pick up in verse 27 with the first heading, What Men Want. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And then look at verse 30. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. There it is. The arrogance and ignorance of man. Now, I know that we haven't yet really dug deep into this story at all, and thus we don't maybe know as much as we could know about this rich man. But it seems, with his double acknowledgement of Father Abraham, that this rich man was also a religious man. He cries out to Father Abraham for mercy, thereby identifying with the very covenant people of God. It seems highly likely that this was a synagogue-going man, a man acquainted with the Scriptures, a man regular in religious duties. And suddenly, in our text, he's become something of an evangelist. He's crafting the campaign by which his brothers can be uh, reached with the gospel. Even after Abraham denies his request, he pushes back. No, no, Father Abraham, listen, you don't understand if someone from the dead, if Lazarus here from the dead visits my brothers, they will surely repent. Suddenly, the one in torment and flame knows better than the father of all the faithful. Yes, even while in torment in Hades, the rich man is saying the Bible isn't enough. His brothers will need something more than Scripture, something bigger. His, his desire and request, it's not a new one at all. Men of this world have been saying for two millennia that the Bible is an insufficient book, an ineffective book, an incompetent book, an impotent book. This rich man who likely frequented week after week after week, the synagogue down the street, and hearing the Scriptures being read again and again and again is now subtly belittling the one and only saving word from God. It's as though he's saying, what good did the Bible do for me? I, I had the word, but look at me now. It's as though he's ridiculing Scripture. Look at my torment 
and then come talk to me about the power of the word. And I know my brothers, Father Abraham, they're just like I am. They've heard what I've heard. They've heard Moses. They've heard David. They've heard Isaiah and Jeremiah. No, they, they must have something more or else they'll come to this very hell just as I have come to this hell. You see, every week in our churches, people just like the rich man are represented. The word comes with power and reality to those seated in the congregation. You look to your right and to your left and you see them. You may not know them, but you see them. And then they're hearing, but not really hearing. They're, they're present. They're, they're under the same powerful instruction. They're, they're, they're all encompassed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but they sense nothing of it. It's not just that they can't see. They won't see. The heart simply cannot see what it isn't looking for. And so there they sit, unmoved and unchanged. The plain proclamation of Scripture just does nothing for them. I mean, if you want to stir men up, if, if you want to create excitement, if you want to provoke a response, something more than the Bible is needed. That's the mindset of the rich man. Something spectacular, something supernatural. Oh, yes, men will be moved by the miraculous, but they don't put the Bible in that category. But all of this begs the question, if the living word won't move you, why do you think some other miracle will? But the rich man, along with all other unconverted men, just shakes his head at this moment. Oh, no, the Bible's just not enough. Now, now, only if Lazarus, risen from the dead, yes, that's it. If, if he appeared to my brothers, that would do it. They would surely listen to him. But isn't that wishful thinking, Mr. Richman? How, how did Pharaoh fare in the days of the Exodus? It was then that God poured out the miraculous left and right, best I recall. But Pharaoh only grew harder, stiffening his neck, becoming more and more defiant. Or what about when the people of Israel stood before Mount Sinai and heard the fearful voice of God? They heard the claps of thunder. They saw the flashes of lightning and the smoke that surrounded that mountain. And yet, soon after, they're giving themselves over to drunken orgies and the idolatry of the pagan nations. How did that work for them? Or what about our Lord's ministry? The ministry of the Messiah, the Word incarnate. In His days there was so much of the miraculous. The feeding of multitudes, the healings. Three brought back to life. And that miracle worker they nailed to a tree. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from You. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Are you so sure your brothers would repent, Mr. Rich Man? 
This much seems clear. Miracles observed won't cut it. And according to Jesus in Matthew 7, not even miracle performed will do. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Ah, oh, but the world still says something more is needed. The Bible isn't enough. We need something stirring, something sensational. Bring in the clowns and the comedians. Bring on the concerts and the contests. Shoot the 10 billion Easter eggs from a warship in the Gulf of Mexico. At the end of the day, it's production quality that'll get the job done. What a lie from Satan. What folly. As one pastor friend of mine would say, if you can win them with a hot dog, you'll lose them to a hamburger. But that's where the tactics and techniques of men get you. This is the mindset of the rich man. This is what men want. A sign. A spectacle. A special visitor from the dead. But let's now consider what men need. Look with me at verse 29. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In verse 31, he said to him again, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. My brothers and sisters, here's the resounding message of this text. Let them hear them. Look here. Listen. Bruised reeds among us tonight. Listen. Scripture is enough. It's not the miraculous. It's not the sensational. It's not the entertainment that has power to save and awaken and humble and reconcile. It's the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 3.15 I mean, what power could a man like Lazarus have to save? Even a Lazarus who's brought back from the grave. The best evangelist, the best preacher, the greatest appeals from the mouth of the holiest saint in the earth, even a resurrected saint, has no saving, regenerating power. Here's what so many fail to see. One rising from the dead to confront a sinner, to warn them, is far less powerful than the Word of God. People get it twisted, though. They think the opposite is true. But they're wrong. They're just wrong. A sinner's heart is so hard and so dark, you see. Fervent warnings won't cut it. Only the powerful and saving word from God can save the sinner. What we often miss is this. God has appointed the very means by which mankind will be saved. It's the Word of God. And according to Scripture, it's a perfect Word from God. It is 
powerful to save. And more than that, it is not only capable of saving a man, of resurrecting the corpse, it is capable of thoroughly equipping you and me to walk with Christ. A life pleasing to God. What more can He give us than He's already given? Mark it down. It is infinitely better that God has preserved His holy word for us. Because Scripture, all by itself, is so far better. Better than God sending us a preaching saint from the dead. That doesn't even come close to the power and effect of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, if you won't find Jesus Christ right here in this book, you wouldn't believe if a glorious angel robed in bright light came to your door tonight and commanded you to repent and believe the gospel. We have a more sure word. Scripture. It's enough. So the simple truth here is that if the Bible, God's appointed means to lead people to salvation, doesn't do it, nothing will. If the Word of God will not awaken and save sinners, nothing will. At the same time, conversely, if one presents to you and me a better way than the Bible to lead people to Jesus Christ, they are absolutely wrong. There has never been and will never be a better way. We have the whole counsel of God. We have written, preserved revelation. We have the gift of all gifts. We have God's Word. In it we hear His voice. In it we know His heart. Oh, how we should read and study and adore and revere this book of all books. Thankfully, what men need, God has provided it right here in the Scriptures. Third and lastly, the sufficiency of Scripture. If God has heard my prayers, and I believe He has, I want and have been asking the Lord that you would leave this message tonight tenaciously clinging to your Bible. I want you to leave with every motivation to thoroughly enjoy this book. I want you even to think as your Lord Jesus Christ thought, and it seemed like His default setting was, let them hear them. Or, in Matthew chapter 4, it is written. It's as though it is written was the heart cry of Jesus and His apostles with 64 different occasions where we find those words in our New Testament, it is written. In an age when the word is constantly undermined and dismissed, we must remain the people of sola scriptura. We are to be people of this book. This is the single repository of written divine revelation. 
It's inspired by God. It's God-breathed. It's inerrant, meaning without error, historical, scientific, theological, or otherwise. And it's infallible, meaning the Bible is incapable of error. So many battles have been fought over this terminology. And truly, these are hills to die on. And yet there is something more we must hold fast to. We must affirm and joyfully embrace the reality of the sufficiency of Scripture. Not just inerrancy, not just infallibility, not just inspiration, but the sufficiency of Scripture. By this, I mean that we understand Scripture to contain everything necessary for both salvation and a life of godliness. Never forget it. Scripture is sufficient to both save you and sanctify you. Let me put the question to you tonight. Have you underestimated the value and worth of this precious book? Have you been looking everywhere else for help and meaning and purpose and direction when you should be looking day by day right here in these pages. Prioritize Scripture, saints. Make much of this book, not so that you can become the biggest brained Christian in your church, the intellectual giant, but rather the biggest hearted Christian you can possibly be. Prioritize Scriptures, saints. Because Scripture is sufficient. It regenerates, 1 Peter 1, 23. It converts, Psalm 19, 7. It makes us wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3, 15. It brings repentance, Luke 16, 29. It imparts knowledge, Proverbs 22, 20. It accomplishes God's purposes, Isaiah 55, 11. It sanctifies saints, John 17, 17. It gives light and understanding, Psalm 119, 130. And it illumines our way, Psalm 119, 105. Read and hear this book, beloved, for what it really is, according to 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, the Word of God. It's a pillow, you know, upon which the believer can always rest. It's a pillar upon which the believer can always lean. It's a pantry from which the believer can always partake. Scripture is a pillow. Do, do you ever think of Scripture being something like a pillow for your weary head? You, you should. For in it we, we find words to weary ones. Think of Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not go, go faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
It's in the Word that we encounter Jesus who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You read the Psalms and you feel as though there's ample comfort for every trial under heaven, every unrest of your heart. For the weary soul, Scripture provides strength. For the hurting soul, Scripture soothes and comforts. For the anxious soul, Scripture quiets and steadies. For the downcast soul, Scripture is the lifter of your head. My brother, my sister, do you regularly relax into the comforts of this holy text. This word can do what the best 2023 pillow technology or the fanciest day spa could never do. Here, my soul and your soul find rest. Scripture as a pillar. That's not the country way of saying pillow. That's the big tall stone things. Do you ever think of Scripture as a pillar on which you can lean? You should. Because this is a book you can fully trust. Think of the huge pillars still standing today, 21st century today, from the Roman Colosseum. I'm reminded of Luke's Gospel where we read, For no word of God will ever fail. Isn't that something? Or from Israel's history, we have a testimony from the times of Joshua. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. This book is, as the hymn says, a rock undaunted by the storms of skeptics and deceivers. Every demon along with Satan himself could take their stand against this mighty pillar word and all their efforts, united as they are, would totally fail, miserably fail. These scriptures abide and remain. The grass may wither, but this word proves true forever. In a world that's so quickly changing, how precious God's unchanging word is to us, dear saints. Rejoice in his word. Enjoy this beautiful anchor for your soul. Here you can lean. I mean really lean hard. I mean lean hard without fear of falling. Scripture is a pantry. Do you... Ever think of Scripture as something like a pantry from which you're to be fed and more than that, satisfied? You should. For these Scriptures offer more nourishment than you could take in in over 20 billion lifetimes. It's sometimes dangerous when dads do the grocery shopping, isn't it? Many a grocery store trip when my daughters were young were joyful for me. I'd love to surprise them by bringing home a box of cereal. I mean real cereal, the good stuff, the sweet stuff. Captain Crunch, Crunch Berries, Cocoa Pebbles, Providential Charms. You know that brand, right? (laughs) And it almost never failed when they'd open the pantry 
and see the goods. They'd smile at me, maybe give me a hug. Beloved, how much more does God give us the absolute best provisions in His Word? How much more? To His children, God says in Psalm 81, Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. And it isn't just the meat and veggies, the proteins, the, the necessities that he provides. No, he, he's the kind of sovereign savior that saves the best wine for last. The pantry, it's full of things delightful and even celebratory. The, the, the pantry stocked with assurances and gospel comforts of every type. So that here we can say with David in Psalm 63, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Oh, dear believer, we possess a sufficient revelation. His word is perfect, even as Proverbs says, flawless. So let me ask you tonight, are you confident in your Bible, dear ones? Jesus says to us, just as he said in this story, let them hear them. Are you rich? Are you in a place of power, prominence? Read the scriptures. Are, are you struggling to get by? Read the scriptures. Are you in the midst of a trial, something of a fiery furnace? Read the scriptures. Are you knowingly in sin tonight? Read the Scriptures. Are you doubting God could be merciful to one like you? Read the Scriptures. Are you soon to die? Read the Scriptures. Are you longing to live? Read the Scriptures. That's it. Because Scripture is enough. And because it's enough... We must truly hear the Word and be shaped by the Word and memorize the Word and teach the Word and feast on the Word. Let Scripture be your pillow, your pillar, your pantry this week and forever. God help us. Pray with me. Father, you have given to us this most sure word. That's Peter's language. Oh Lord, that we would own it, that we would know it, that we would rejoice in it, relish, delight in it, be stabilized by it. When things are shaking around us, Lord, that we could stand firm on these very promises. Bolster, embolden your people. I pray, let us be those that believe this word even to the end. Oh, Lord, help. By your spirit, write this truth on our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.